Good morning, good evening, and good night. Whatever time of day you're listening to this, welcome to What Lies in the Dark. I'm Jay Yvonne. All your life, you've been taught that the monsters you fear are under your bed and they're hiding in your closet. As you grow older, you find out that monsters aren't real. But are they? They don't hide or go boo in the night. They look just like us. They even live next door. They're our friends. They're our family. They're our neighbors. And sometimes they're even our spouses. This isn't to scare you. It's to keep you vigilant. Keep your eyes open. It's to debunk the idea that monsters just simply are not real. Statistics say about 50% of victims know their attackers. That means 50% of the time, you shouldn't fear the unknown monsters in the dark. You must be careful of the monsters you already know. Maybe you have to know the darkness before you can appreciate the light. If you're anything like me, you love true crime. You're simply addicted to trying to figure out the who, what, when, where, and the why. The psychology of it all. You sit on the edge of your seat trying to piece the puzzle together before the end of the story. So allow me, every week, to tell you a true crime story. Come feed your true crime addiction with me. Grab your coffee, midday pick-me-up, wine, adult beverage, or whatever you're into. And let's get into this week's story. Hey, hey! Welcome back, or simply just welcome if you are new to this podcast. Uh, What Lies in the Dark is a true crime podcast that I compiled together for all my true crime junkies. So, like I said, welcome if you're new. If you are not new, hey! Um, Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I thank you, like I always thank you, for your continued support. I thank you for tuning in. It is another wonderful day in the neighborhood, you guys, because we drop in another episode. So don't forget to like the podcast, subscribe, and of course, share the podcast. Um, if you'd like to stay connected, follow the show on Instagram at WLITD underscore podcast. And if you have case suggestions, or uh, case updates, or just any information true crime related, um, hit us up at WLITDpodcast at gmail.com. I'm still working on the TikTok. I haven't figured out the complete logistics of it. I don't know if I want to do like a episode where it's just mini episodes, so it's not ones that I do on the, sh- on the podcast, on the show, or if I want to do um, like a snippet of the episode and then you know kind of give you a little teaser and anyways i'll work that out and then i'll let you know when the um when the tiktok account is ready to be uh viewed or whatever okay so stay tuned for that anyways i have a really good case all my cases are really good i don't do boring cases but i have a really good case so sit back relax grab your snacks grab your your coffee your tea your alcohol whatever time of day it is and uh, let me tell you this story so kenya Manje was a typical 19 year old. Um, she was in that in between age of, you know, she's grown, but she's not quite grown, you know, still figuring out life, um, still trying to, I mean, this wasn't in the details, but I'm just, just painting a picture here. Okay. So typical 19 year old, that's, that's what you imagine. And she lived in Denver, She's a student and she's also holding on a job. So she is taking care of her responsibilities the best way she knows how. Um, And she's doing the thing. Okay. So just imagine you work and go to school and go to school and go to work. And and it's a nonstop thing, right? Your schedule is probably always jam packed with 
things, activities, you have family, you have friends. And so I imagine that this was a really long and hectic week. So Kenya decides that she wants to go out. She's like, yeah, I want to go out, I want to have fun. I want to drink, I want to dance, I want to just unwind. So Kenya decides to go out and have herself a really good time with some of her really good friends. The following day, phone calls begin to be made. No one has heard from or seen Little Miss Kenya. Kenya's boyfriend is, is he's the one who starts the chain of phone calls. He's the one who starts the, um, the telephoning, right? Uh, so he calls her sister to see if maybe the sister has heard from Kenya, but unfortunately she hasn't. So she's like, what's going on? You know, why are you, why are you calling? You know, just, you know, just tell me the details. And so he informs her that Kenya did not return home. So Kim, that's her sister's name, calls their father, Tony, to tell him what's going on. After their conversation, he then starts making phone calls to Kenya's friends. And he's, you know, each person is giving him information and what he finds out the the stuff that he gathers is that Kenya left all of her belongings at the bar that they were at the night before. And this seems strange of someone who is planning on returning. Like, why would you leave your purse and your phone and your ID and all of these things if you planned on leaving for the night? So in their head, when she got up and she moved away or wherever she went, she was coming back. And to her father, it seemed like the same thing. There didn't seem to be like a plan of, I'm leaving for the night. I'm going to go do something else. So um, her father, Tony, decides that this is very suspicious and he's got to make this phone call to the police. And he reports his findings. He reports what the friends told him about that night. But unfortunately, the police tell him that there is a mandatory 72-hour wait because Kenya is 19 and she's actually considered an adult. And the police won't do anything about their information until they confirm that she didn't just run off. And I just want to take a moment to pause here. I'm not sure if this is across all 50 states. I don't know if this is um, just something that certain states or certain jurisdictions do. But um, in a lot of true crime stories, there's always that 72-hour or 48-hour time period in which, especially in dealing with a person that is deemed to be of sound mind and body, and they're an adult, um, is that weight of like, we don't want to use our resources to go track down somebody who literally just decided that they just didn't want to live their life anymore. So this news is obviously upsetting to Tony, uh, because who wants to be told that the case of their missing family member won't be touched for 72 hours? three days, right? Because in three days, there's so much that can happen. There are critical moments, crucial details. There's so much that we're missing in that 72 hour wait period. So Tony is like, yeah, no, I'm not doing this. I am. I'm not going to sit around and wait. And I don't know any, any loved one who would, who could just sit around and just like twiddle their thumbs. Oh, you know, whatever the police say. So Tony and his determination and probably very, very frustrated with the lack of help starts his own investigation. He begins to go through uh, Kenya's phone because at this point he has her belongings. So he's going through her phone um, and he's like going through the text messages and he sees texts from the friends that she was with that night. Like they're coming in and it's like, hey, are you okay? Um, where are you? Hey, I've contacted you a couple times now. You're not answering. Why haven't I heard from you? You know, just the typical, typical thing. You know, when your friend goes missing, if you're a real friend, when your friend goes missing, um, that's what you do. You start checking in. You're like, uh, what's going on? Where you at? I ain't heard from you. You know, 
it starts off as like one text because you're like, okay, maybe you just got really drunk last night and you didn't think about calling or texting anybody. Or maybe you just got got home and got straight in the bed. But uh, after I've texted you and it's been a couple hours and I still haven't heard from you, maybe I'll send you one more text. But at this point, I'm calling. So I can just imagine her friends are doing the same thing. Like, listen, we gave you a grace period to like sober up and hit us back and you haven't. So now we're about to take matters into our own hands. So they are blowing up her phone. Her friends are obviously very, very concerned or starting to get concerned with where she might be. But um, as Tony is going through her phone, as he's looking through uh, the text messages and the different phone calls, he notices one text in particular. This text catches his eye. The text is from someone named Travis. And it says this. Hey, this is Travis, the guy who gave you a ride last night. Creepy white van. Did you get your car home okay? Creepy white van. Actually, I think it said white creepy van. Either way, he literally said in his text, I'm the guy who gave you a ride in my van that people would typically consider to be creepy. Tony calls and texts everyone that he could, he could, trying to figure out where Kenya was. The only person that he had trouble reaching was this Travis person. So after a while, Tony stopped contacting her friends because all her friends were telling him the same bit of information. You know, either, yeah, we saw her last night. Yeah, she was drinking. Yes, yeah, she got up you know, whatever, or no, we haven't seen it or heard from her. He felt like the only person who would actually have information would be Travis. He was sure this was probably the last person to have seen her. So he calls and he doesn't get an answer. So he calls again. Still, there's no answer. And this just continues and it goes on and on and on. He just continues to call and call and call and he's not receiving an answer. Tony believes that he probably called about 20 to 25 times that faithful day. The following day, April 2nd, you guys, I don't think I told you when all of this took place. So let me back up a little bit because for some reason I... I didn't tell you when this all started. So um, Kenya goes out with her friends um, May 31st. On the 1st is when, um, when she doesn't come home. So April Fool's is when she doesn't come home. And... It's when all of these conversations are had about, hey, where are you? Where is she? Have you heard from her? Is when the initial phone calls are made. And this is when Tony tries to file that report. By April 2nd, so this is two days since she's disappeared, Tony gets a call. It's it's later in the night. It's like 8 p.m. And um, the person on the other end of the phone is none other than Travis. And Travis is just doing his due diligence. No, I'm just kidding. Travis is returning um, all the multiple phone calls and um, messages that have been left on his phone by Tony. So Travis tells a frantic Tony that he saw Kenya outside. And she, from his you know experience or eyesight or however you want to frame that, she looked like she needed assistance. So he's like, I'm going to be a good Samaritan. And he decides to offer her a ride. And Kenya's like, okay, thank you. And she takes it. Kenya gets into the van and Travis asks if she needs help because she is visibly out of it. She is displaying all of the typical signs of someone who is not of sound mind and body. Travis continues his story saying that Kenya asked him to take her to a gas station and when they arrive, she sees a man smoking a cigarette. Kenya gets out 
and goes up to this man and begins talking to him. And Travis takes this as an opportunity to leave her there with a total and complete stranger, I might add. After just stating that this same girl needed help. After noticing that this same girl was out of it, apparently in that moment, he believed that she was of sound mind to make this kind of choice regarding her safety. He didn't say that, but that is what I'm deducing from, hey, she was so out of it, I offered her a ride because I thought that she needed help. And hey, she was so out of it that I asked her if she needed help because the way she was moving and talking and just her mannerisms said she may not be completely there. And then she asked me to take her to the gas station. I say, okay, we go to the gas station, we pull up, we stop, and then she sees a man. I have no idea if she knows this man, but she sees a man and all of a sudden I believe that this same girl that I thought was so helpless and needed a ride was okay to stand here and have a conversation with some random guy in the middle of the night at a gas station. Yeah, you took that somewhere safely and you tell me how much sense that makes to you. So Travis leaves and that's the last time he saw or he spoke to Kenya. Once Tony and Travis are off the phone, something just doesn't sit right. Tony didn't believe a word that was just spoken to him. But he couldn't go to police with a gut feeling. They'd probably look at him crazy. He had absolutely no proof that his gut feeling of what was just told to him, of that whole story being malarkey, he had no proof that Travis knew any more than what he said or that he was involved in any way to Kenya's disappearance. And how would that look? A father who just reported his daughter missing, he was told, you have to wait. Now you're coming in here saying, hey, I possibly talked to the guy who had something to do with it and you need to get up off of your behinds and do something about it. Yeah, they probably weren't going to take very kindly to that. And they probably were going to to just label him as a frantic father who's just trying to find answers and is just going off of every whim possible. So Tony was dead set on figuring out what happened to his daughter. I mean, what really happened to his daughter. Tony couldn't just let it go. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean, oh my goodness, you're you're crazy and you just need... No, Tony was so dead set on figuring out more information that there was no way anyone was going to convince him to just drop it. And I mean, who in their right mind would have? He had no idea where Kenya was and in what physical state she was in, not knowing what who, where, when, why was just eating him up on the inside. So he calls Travis back and he tells him, hey, man, I I don't know. I just, I just have some more questions. When he asked Travis to tell him again where he last saw Kenya, instead of telling him the name of the place or giving a description, Travis says, why don't you just meet me there? with no earthly idea who this man was, what he was capable of, or up to, Tony says, okay, I'm on my way. Tony's desire to find his daughter, to bring her home safe, overrode his need to save himself. If it meant he could bring her home, Tony would risk it all. Tony grabbed his nine millimeter and he tells his wife that he's leaving and he's going to go meet up with this Travis guy and her being in her right mind and being completely rational begs and pleads with her husband not to do it because she knows what dangers could be out there waiting for him. But Tony won't listen. He is set on figuring out what's really going on. When Tony leaves, Maria, his wife, calls the police to forewarn them. She tells them that there's a meeting that's happening between my husband and some guy 
She voices her concerns that things may not end well. And of course, she tells them, hey, my husband is, you know, in this state of mind. We're going through this. Oh, yeah. And he packed his nine millimeter. So police are dispatched to the meetup location. When Tony arrives, he immediately hops out of the car, leaving his gun inside, which I'm assuming is a good move for him (laughs) in hindsight. In the moment, he was probably just so wrapped up with emotion, he didn't think to grab it. But nevertheless, this is how things began to play out. And he immediately starts walking up to Travis. Luckily, the police intercept this interaction. They have no idea about the conversation. They have no idea that this may have been the last person to see Kenya. But they do know that they have a very angry parent on the loose. A very distraught, confused, I need answers parent on the loose. And that's not going to lead to any kind of rationale. So Tony tells them why he is there and that he just wants to talk. He just wants to see if there's anything, anything that Travis is leaving out that he's not telling him. And the police oblige. Travis retells his story in front of the police and Tony. All of the details are the same. There's no variation. There's no new information. There's no nothing. It's the same story, word for word. When he's done, he apologizes and he offers his hand to Tony in a show of camaraderie. Tony thanks Travis for the information for meeting up with him and the two shake hands. But Tony notices something. As these two are shaking hands, Tony can feel Travis tremble or shake. Not just his hand, but Travis is shaking. It's not visible. It's not noticeable to anyone but Tony. Had they not shaken hands, he might not have caught on to it. Tony believes for sure now that he is standing in front of the last person to see his daughter. Tony asks police to take a look into Travis's van. He's basically pleading with them to do something. He convinces them that there might be some information there since Kenyon did receive a ride from Travis. Even though uh, a formal investigation hasn't been started yet, police decide that this actually is a good lead. They check the van, but they don't find any evidence that could be of any use. Nothing seems out of place or worth writing a report about. But police do notice a smell. There is a super strong odor of bleach coming from this van. There is so much bleach that police note that it is like when you overspray something and it's, it begins to drip. That is how much bleach is in this van. And, you know, I know just like me, you're thinking, well, that's noticeable. Like there's there's bleach. There's a lot of bleach. There's a smell of bleach. There's There's bleach dripping down. That's something to write a report about. But cleaning your van and overcleaning and excessive cleaning is not a crime. So police note it, but there's not anything they can really do with it. And then if you're listening to this podcast, and I'm sure you listen to other true crime podcasts or other true crime shows, bleach. Bleach. That's all I have to say. So Tony still has 24 hours to wait before the police would launch their official investigation. But of course, he can't sit and twiddle his thumbs. Tony goes out in search of his baby girl. He has no idea what he will find or where exactly to look. But this to him is better than the alternative. Tony believes that with everything that's happening, the circumstances, the information, the trembling, the rehearsed story, all of this stuff, Tony believes 
that he's not looking for physical Kenya. And I guess I kind of tripped over myself there. He believes that he's not looking for her to be alive. So Tony looks in dumpsters, trash cans, and alleys. Tony is convinced that the fear in Travis, the story, the excessive amounts of bleach means that his daughter is dead. At this point, he's prepared to find that something very sinister and tragic has happened to her. But Tony keeps this bit of information to himself because he can't bring himself to tell his family that he believes that they're not going to find Kenya the way they want to find Kenya. He didn't want to take away their hope, that hope that was driving them to keep pushing. April 3rd, the investigation into Kenya's disappearance can finally begin. Her disappearance was made public. There were posters put put up all over. Police start combing for information. They start asking for any video surveillance that's available. And they do find a video. There's one outside of an apartment complex. There's no real information that they can take from it besides the fact that they can note that she is visibly out of it. They conclude that she is heavily intoxicated. And this is news, but it also isn't news. Her family knew of her apparent state because of Travis's statements, but they didn't know Kenya to be a heavy drinker. This sort of behavior was very unusual because she would frequently go out, she'd go dancing, And she was not known to be a heavy drinker. Her family thinks that maybe she was slipped something because this whole being out of it thing is totally out of her character. On the 4th, the lead investigator on the case gets a call. The woman on the other end says that she knows Travis personally and she's his boss. And I know you're like, wait, what? There's, I'm missing something. There's like pieces missing. How do we get here? How are people already calling in to give tips? So apparently news of the investigation wasn't the only thing being talked about. The leads and the details of the investigation were also leaked, causing panic. Many people tried to find ways to help close the investigation and put away the person responsible. At the time, The main suspect that was leaked was none other than Travis. So the woman calling actually isn't that suspicious. This woman is the bakery owner where Travis works. And she's going through her camera feed. And she notices that he's unplugged the camera. And she's like, hmm, why? Like, What is he doing that he feels compelled to unplug my camera, my security camera, that? This is odd. So she goes back on the video and she sees him in long yellow cleaning gloves walking into the office after everyone else has left for the day. She also notes that the day before he unplugs the camera that he puts a cooler into the freezer. To anyone else, this may not have been weird, but to the owner, it's out of his character because it's something that he's never done before. Also, the cooler is taped shut with black duct tape. On the video, you can see Travis unload the cooler and, you know, just put it in the freezer. But the weird behavior doesn't stop there. He keeps close to that freezer. Anytime someone goes into the freezer, he walks in after them. He's like monitoring the activities of this freezer. So there are times when people walk into the freezer and he walks right in, right in, right behind them. And there are times that people walk into the freezer and then they walk out and then he goes in to the freezer as if to suspect, you know, the contents of the freezer. Police go to the bakery in search of this cooler. When they arrive, 
They don't get any lucky breaks because it's gone. But they don't let this deter them. They begin combing this area. And out back, they find a barrel that looks to have recently been set on fire. This, of course, raises police's suspicions. What did someone need to burn in that barrel? What are they trying to hide? What were they trying to get rid of? 36 days after Kenya's disappearance, Travis is interviewed. The police don't have anything to hold him on and there's no evidence to link him to anything. The barrel is tested but returned empty. There's nothing viable there. There's no fingerprints, no DNA. Police obtain a search warrant to get a DNA swab for Travis. They were unable to link his DNA to anything in the system. And unfortunately, they had to let little Mr. Travis go. Once Travis is released, he decides that this is the opportunity for him to go on live TV to quote unquote, clear his name in an interview. For about 10 minutes, Travis is on live TV trying to convince the reporter and everyone watching that he had nothing to do with this. The reporter asked him straightforward if he had anything to do with it, if he hurt her, if he knows where she is, if he, you know, just literally cut and dry, straight to the point. No beating around the bush. And she asked in multiple different ways. And every single time, Travis says no. But police go on to note that even though he's stating no, his demeanor, his body language, all scream yes. They state that throughout the interview, Travis is nodding his head, even though the words he's saying is no. Afterwards, Travis used the spotlight to point blame, to literally turn the conversation off of him and to place blame on Kenya for whatever happened that night. His exact words. You know, everybody has their own choices, you know? And she chose to walk away with this guy. And I can't. I can't blame myself for that. God. I'm sorry. This has been really emotional for me. And in the video, you can see him like, you know, put his hands on his head, wipe his eyes, you know, the whole distraught, emotional, you know, what what you expect to see from someone trying to play up emotion. But he's victim blaming. The police decide to have Travis come back in to take a lie detector test. Travis tried to run away to Mexico, but police gets wind of his plan and they stop him before he could flee. He served with another search warrant and he's sent back to Colorado. The search warrant turns up nothing. This time, Travis moves back to his hometown and decides that he's going to keep a very, very low profile. July 4th, 2011, Lydia is out enjoying fireworks. She's invited out to see fireworks show on the 4th of July, and she's having a great time. When the fireworks were over, Lydia begins walking home. And then as she's at her residence, she notices that someone has just been following her and she doesn't know who this person is. He pushes his way into her home and brutally attacks and sexually assaults her. During the whole ordeal, this stranger was trying to take Lydia's life, but she's just not going to let him have it that easy as she's fighting back. He did at some point manage to knock her out and probably thinking that he'd done the deed, he begins dousing the place and her in bleach. And then he sets it on fire. He walked away as if he'd done absolutely nothing. 
At some point, Lydia comes to and musters up just enough strength to throw herself out of her second story window. She lands pretty hard onto the concrete below. She's hurt. A neighbor sees the fire rising, kicks in the door, hoping to rescue whomever might be in the apartment. Emergency services arrive and they start working on the fire. No one has seen Lydia. No one knows where she is. No one knows that she's escaped from the apartment. So they're actually pretty surprised when they find her behind the building. She is miraculously still alive. Lydia has been badly beaten and she is naked. She is in really bad shape, but she's able to get up and get into the ambulance. Due to her injuries, Lydia suffers a massive stroke. She was in such bad shape, she has a crushed jaw and eye sockets. Her wrists are shattered and she's suffering from broken ribs. All of her injuries, plus the stroke, lead medical professionals to put her into a medically induced coma. And she'd stay in one for five weeks. The lead detective starts making phone calls one of which is to the Denver police. She informs them that their victim, um, she tells them of the condition that she was in and that her house reeked of bleach. She says the crime scene is completely destroyed due to the fire and the victim is unfortunately unable to provide any information at this time. They tell her that they have a potential killer walking freely on her streets. They have no idea of the attack they have no idea if these attacks are related but this guy is wanted for murder and he just coincidentally happens to be in the area they exchange details and they come to the conclusion that they're dealing with the exact same guy denver with kenya and um this and lydia they're dealing with the same part so they just have to prove it and this time, they need something that will undoubtedly prove it's him. Police go to the hospital and take forensic evidence from Lydia. They're not hopeful that they'll find anything since she's been drenched in bleach. But they're able to obtain DNA from under her fingernails, and they send it off to be tested. Travis is still walking the streets of Freeman, even though police believe that it's him. They basically set up a surveillance tell on him. And one day while they're, you know, telling him, they see him walking and talking with the young lady. When the police make contact with him, he decides to give false information. They need anything at this point to just get him off the streets because like their palms are itchy. They're like, this is our guy. We just don't have the legal stance right now to lock him away. So... Police get their break and they arrest him for falsely reporting, for giving false information. One agonizing week later, the results of that DNA test are in and they match. Travis isn't going anywhere and police finally have what they need to hold him. And so the story goes like this. They have him on false reporting and he is given a bond. And um, I guess he's about to make bond. He has the money. He's like being processed out. Literally, it's like it's in the works for him to be processed out and to be bonded out. And the results come in. And um, the lead detective on Lydia's case calls down and she's like basically no 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 don't let him go because i got him we got him and so i'm sure as quickly as he thought he was getting out of there they went on and held him uh hauled him back up to that cell and he probably was very very upset so police contact kenya's family with the news even though he's locked up and unable to hurt anyone else kenya's family is still in search for closure they want to know what happened to her, where her body is, 
what are the details of, of what happened that night? Tony is so determined to get answers that he just tells the, the police that he doesn't care if they have to take a plea deal. If they have to plead down his charges, he just wants to know. So police go in to talk to Travis and immediately he dismisses them. He wants nothing to do with the police. And this is very discouraging because they want to provide Kenya's family with the information that they're asking for. So the lead detective in Denver tries his hand at trying to get Travis to talk. He said that even though Travis never wanted to talk to anyone, he was always willing to talk to him. And all the detective wanted to do was to provide Kenya's family with closure. So the detective and Travis began talking deals of a deal, deals of a deal, details of a deal. Travis tells him that he'd be willing to talk, but only under two circumstances. Travis doesn't want to be labeled a sex offender and he wants the death penalty taken off the table. The two agree. The following day, all the official paperwork is signed and Travis takes them to the place where Kenya's body is. They can finally provide her family with some sort of closure. Before trial, police go back to Travis to talk to him one more time. He discusses the details of the night of Kenya's disappearance. He tells police that while she was in his vehicle, she passes out and he uses this as his chance, as his opportunity to take advantage of her. While he's in the act, she wakes up, confronts him, and starts hitting him. Travis begins strangling her, and just like that, Kenya is lifeless in the back of his van. She was assaulted, kidnapped, and ultimately killed. He also confesses to the events that led up to Lydia. The Bleach Monster is what they named him. He was very good about cleaning up the scene. He would bleach everything down, cleaning everything thoroughly to ensure he didn't leave any traces behind. So much bleach was used that the entire place reeked of it. And it was literally dripping from the surfaces. Tony, Kenya's father, created a foundation to help families of missing girls. They have used their tragedy to help others. The foundation is named after Kenya. Lydia isn't letting Travis and his attack control her. She is thriving and living life she has decided to start teaching self-defense classes to women. For the attack, Travis was sentenced to 48 years in prison to run consecutively with his life sentence for Kenya's murder. So good old Mr. Travis ain't getting out no time soon and I did not see anything about a possibility of parole, which we love, you know? We don't ever want the monsters to come from up under the bed or from out of the closet. And so lock him up, throw away the key and let him, you know, give him all that time to think about what he did. So. um, Yeah, I don't I don't have usually like I normally have things to talk about and I don't have anything. This story was kind of cut and dry. Um. I think the only like burning question that I have for the story, actually I lied, but one of the burning questions that I have um, is that whole 72 hour, 48 to 72 hour thing. I don't, I don't, I mean, I get it. I get it. I get it. I understand not wanting to use resources to, to try and find somebody who doesn't want to be found. Somebody who by their own free will, got up and walked away. And I also understand it in terms of like, if they are running away from, you know, trouble, um, like there's someone trying to attack them and the attacker goes, well, you know what? I'm going to be smart and I'm going to file a police report 
and then the police will do my dirty work and find that person. I get all the different scenarios and the reasons why the uh, wait time could essentially be very, very, um, it'd be a very, very good thing. But I feel like for cases like this, for stories like this, that, that wait time is actually very critical. Um, I understand that for Kenya, it, it wouldn't have done anything if they would have started looking for her immediately because she was already unfortunately gone. But, um, a lot of times when they do find, um, who they're looking for, um, in cases like this, it's sometimes it was days or weeks before the, um, the, the killer actually became a killer. And so those 48 hours, those 72 hours, maybe could have stopped it. Um, and then like, they never go into, and you know, maybe they don't know, but like Travis never gives any insight as to why he did what he did. Like there's, there wasn't a, you know, uh, I don't know. There was like, sometimes there's a backstory. There's like a, I don't know. Sometimes there's some kind of information that kind of piece together why this person decided to attack or to kill or, or kidnap or whatever and it just seems like it just just happened it was just like okay maybe he got the first taste with Kenya it was just like opportune it was op- it was a opportunity and then like, he got the taste he's like oh well you know I'll get an adrenaline rush when I do this and so then that's why um he did what he did to Lydia who knows? Um, but I don't know that this, like I said, case was very cut and dry. And I think the only thing that really infuriated me was, um, was the hold. Um, I think that Travis is kind of stupid to send the text the way he sent it. He could have probably just said like, Hey, this is, this is Travis. Actually, actually y'all I'm stupid. I'm so freaking dumb. Travis is dumb as you know what. He already knew before he sent that text that Kenya was gone. So he literally just gave them the ammo that they needed to then look for him. No one might n- no one might not have looked for him and looked in his direction had he not sent that text. And his whole text was like a confession. He's like, hey, this is Travis. Okay, great. You told us what your name is. I'm the guy who gave you a ride last night. Okay. She doesn't know you because you gave us your name and you gave her a ride last night and we can't find her. You know they can't find her because you know you're the last person to see her. And also you added in this white creepy van BS with a smiley face. And did you get your car home okay? Knowing what happened. You set yourself up for failure, my guy. And I didn't even realize that as I was researching the story, as I was telling the story, I didn't get that piece of information until just right now. So I had a slow moment. Um, maybe some of you already caught that, but Travis put his own self on the radar. Like, I don't know if he felt guilty, he felt bad. I don't know if he's like one of those, um, people who wants the recognition. And so maybe like, you know, if people don't know she's missing or people don't know to look for her or people don't know, um, you know, whatever, he doesn't get the spotlight. Cause if you're not looking for, if you don't know she's missing, you don't know that there was a crime that took place and then I don't get glorified. Maybe he's one of those people. Um, you, we see that a lot with, um, killers that, um, they like to be the center of attention. And so maybe that was his whole thing. Maybe he was like, uh, yeah, I need you to notice me. I need you to know that I did something very, very bad and you haven't even caught on to me yet, even though it only been a couple of hours, but Okay. Um, yeah, um, the, the interview, if you guys, um, will like go on YouTube or whatever and search like Bleach Monster or Travis, I can't remember what his last name is. I'm not even going to give him the satisfaction of telling you his first and last name because you suck. Um, but if you search, um, the case, you search his name, you search Bleach Monster, uh, Colorado, uh, you'll see the interview clip that police like are naming um, infamous and notorious that he's literally answering these questions, but his mo- his head movement isn't going with what he's saying. And like when I watched it, I was thinking it was going to be like, 
you know, an obvious, like, he's like really nodding his head, but he's saying no, but it's more of a, like a subtle kind of thing. Um, but if you get a chance to check it out, you should definitely um, check that out. Um, also the fact that he decided that this is going to be a good opportunity to go on live TV and talk about, um, the case to quote unquote, clear yourself. Like you're just putting yourself further and further into the investigation. And if you're a true crime junkie for real, you know that that is typically what happens. Um, most of the time police are looking for somebody who is inserting themselves into the investigation, um, because they're either trying to make themselves not look guilty or they're trying to be in the know when police start to, um, catch their scent. And so he was like putting the spotlight on himself, that text, putting the spotlight on himself, the behavior at his workplace, unplugging the stuff, putting the spotlight on himself, the, the bleaching down your van, the, um, the cooler situation, the burning of the barrel outside of, um, the workplace, like you're putting yourself on the radar. And I don't know if you were trying to get caught. Don't know if the possibility of being caught was sending you like adrenaline or what, but Travis is a no-go and you probably should have stuck to your little bakery job, um, day job, uh, because uh, being a criminal was not, it was not your forte. You don't need to put that on your resume. You were not very good at it. Um, I think that's it of me, um, breaking down, not even breaking down, but just kind of going over some things that I thought were like, you know, I don't know, important doing my little talky talk at the end. Um, I did not notate this. So I'm gonna notate this. Um, Lydia was in such bad shape that she actually like it, this is messed with her speech. Um, and it took her quite a while to be able to speak. Um, it's, she still has like a, um, problems talking. Um, if you can, again, if you research, you can find a clip, you can, you'll see what I'm saying. Um, so just the bravery in her being able to talk about it now, cause she talks about it. Um, her being able to write a note, um, for the sentencing phase, uh, for Travis was very brave, very, um, heroic in my opinion and um she wasn't able to talk at that time so her father read it but at the end of it she forgives him like wholeheartedly forgives Travis for what he did to her um and I just wanted to you know put that out there um I know that there are plenty of other stories where the victims forgive their attackers I just think that takes a lot like a lot a lot especially when it's it's something that you're going to live with forever. Like you live with the attack forever, but when you live with like something physical, you live with a scar, a mark for Lydia, she lives with, um, it affecting her speech and probably the way that people perceive her now, you know, because she has this problem with her speech, um, to have that daily reminder and still be able to forgive is amazing in my opinion. So how to keep you from being the who, um, I, you guys are trying to be clever. Anyways, try, uh, how to keep you from being the who? Um, gosh, in Kenya's case, I, I don't know because her family thinks she was slipped to date rape drug. Um, and she was with her friends, I guess, you know, like I always say, keeping your friends close. If you guys are going to go out traveling in packs and groups and don't allow your friends to just get up and walk away. Um, you know, keep a close eye on them. I, I understand we're in the age now where people are grown and, you know, you kind of want to give them the space and the opportunity to be grown and not like all in their face. Like, Hey, just checking on you. But in situations like this, being vigilant, being, keeping your eyes open is, is very, very important. And so I guess in that instance, um, I guess in both instances, just paying attention to your surroundings, um, you know, keeping a watchful eye out on your friends, um, you know, um, being that person, that friend who's like, Hey, text me when you make it home. And then if I don't hear from you, when you, when you, you know, make it home, I'm calling, I'm texting, sharing locations, just being very, very vigilant. It just seems like that is always going to be the key piece of information is to be very, very vigilant. Um, not 
trying to say that I am um, not encouraging people to live their best lives. And if you have to go out by yourself because plans are falling through and friends can sometimes be flaky, um, not saying that I don't encourage that, but just be very, very careful. And also, you know, disclaimer to my disclaimer, um, also seeing a lot of stories of people going out with their friends and then their friends being the ones that are, um, putting them in harm's way. So I know that that's even a issue or a problem. So I guess that's, that doesn't necessarily keep you from being the who, um, gosh, it's like a double-edged sword. Cause like keep your friends close so that your enemies can't penetrate your circle. And if your friends are close, then they know your typical behaviors and you guys share locations and you send texts and phone calls to say, Hey, I made it home. But then when your friends are the people who are putting you in harm's way, you know, all of that really doesn't, gosh, that got really dark. Um, okay. So I'm going to end that there before I turn this into a whole different kind of podcast where we're talking about theories and debunking things and things of that nature. And we're just going to call it a night. So I thank you for taking the time to let me tell you the story. I want to take a moment to um, pay homage, um, pay remembrance, give our respects to Kenya and Lydia. Um, Kenya, Kenya's full name is Kenya Monier and Lydia's whole name is Lydia Tillman. So we're going to pay um, our respects, give them our moment of silence to them and to their families. Like I say, every episode, um, we do sometimes forget that the families suffer and they are victims as well. And I'm sure having to um, go through this traumatic experience, whether they got their daughter back or they did not, is probably very, very painful. They live with that all the time. They are forever going to be marked like our Scarlet A with the fact that they live with this tragedy. Um, and they will forever be the family of so-and-so. So, you know, I always want to take a moment to pay my respects, um, just as much as I want you guys to pay yours. Because uh, that's the purpose of this podcast is to shine a light on the case, to tell you a story, um, but to also warn you about monsters and to keep you vigilant. So remember to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tell a friend, to tell their friend about a little podcast uploading new episodes every week. If you'd like to see the victims and the accused, um, keep your fingers crossed because I still have not uploaded the Instagram. And at this point it's getting, I don't know how many cases I'm behind and it just is becoming such a daunting task that I just keep uploading episodes without uploading the information. Um, I'm also going to kind of change the format of how I upload um, the information onto Instagram, but I'm hoping to get all of that done within the coming weeks. But go ahead and uh, be vigilant. Be better than me. Be better than me and go ahead and follow the show on Instagram at WLITD underscore podcast. Um, if you would like to send case suggestions, encouraging words, updates to cases, um, foundation information, if you know about any foundations out there that are helping, um, you know, in the true crime world, closed cases, um, you know, tip lines, etc. You can email them at WLITD podcast at gmail.com. And lastly, um, stay, stay tuned, stick around, I guess, for the TikTok because it will be coming soon, as well as some other things going on with the podcast and with the channel. And I just, again, thank you for sticking it out and writing it out with me. Um, we're going through our little hiccups, you know, we're going through our little um growing pains but overall i love you guys i love this podcast i love doing this i don't think i'll ever not love doing this i wish that um i could just get on here and just talk 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 um but i am trying to find the time to put in the work to um to do the research for the cases so that i can give you an episode every week and because i'm doing this by myself researching and then the editing of the podcast and then uploading and then giving a description and all that and then uploading on Instagram and um, all that, you know, is, is very timely, time consuming. And um, 
you know, not that I don't love it. I'm not giving excuses. It's just sometimes it's a lot easier to just get on here and talk and give you a case than it is to um, do all the other filler work. So please excuse me for not being on my A-game with the other stuff um, or not being on my A-game like some of your favorite podcasters. I am trying to get better um, and I'm definitely trying to get better now that I've been doing this for a year. I still think that's crazy. It's been a year, you guys. Um, so yeah, so just keep rocking with me, keep bearing with me, um, keep leaving the reviews, keep liking the podcast, keep sharing the podcast, um, help me get better, give me your feedback, um, and I hope to continue to keep doing this for you guys for a very, very long time to come. So, um, like I always say, tell your friends. All right, so I'm out. Remember, don't just check up on people, but be there, be present love one another, be kind to one another, support one another, be a helping hand to one another, and watch out for what lies in the dark. Because I don't want to have to report on you, 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 or you, or any of your loved ones. I'll see you next week for another episode to help feed your true crime addiction. Bye!